The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. For those of you uh, who don't know me, um, I've served uh, in uh, apologetics with Ravi's ministry for seven years, five years as the Canadian director of of RZIM. I still work with RZIM. Um, but I stepped down from the position as director recently to focus on the Canadian and North American landscape and uh, work towards the establishing of an institute for contemporary Christianity in Toronto. So that's what I'm involved with uh, right now. I was uh, interested and intrigued when Roy uh, contacted me and, and asked me to address the subject of the emergent church. Uh, We can't do it justice in 45 minutes uh, to an hour, as you can imagine, uh, given the books, uh, blog sites, um, endless articles and so forth that have been written uh, on this particular subject. What we can do, though, is make uh, some general observations uh, and raise some questions, uh, some concerns, and perhaps even one or two warnings. In order to begin, though, I want to read to you from God's Word, from Luke chapter 24, uh, beginning at verse 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad, and one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of these things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. I'm going to come back to reference that uh, in a few moments. Now, as somebody who's worked in the field of Christian apologetics, as a Christian apologist, the role of the apologist in the history of the church, as I'm sure many of you know, is the desire to defend, confirm, and set forth a clear understanding of the Christian faith and the theology of the church from threats within and without. In the early centuries, the apologists spent a lot more time dealing with threats from within 
than they did from without. In later times, we tend to associate the apologist as somebody who is dealing with attacks, questions, objections from without. My uh, background, as has been mentioned, is in theology and apologetics and missiology, but I want to stress not simply of the classroom. I've had the privilege over the last um, 12 years in ministry now, I know I don't look old enough, but I uh, just about, uh, to travel from the Far East uh, uh, across the world, as far as North America, to over 25 different countries uh, to defend and proclaim and share the faith in diverse contexts. And so when Roy asked me about coming to do this session, I didn't say yes because I love disputation, because actually I'm quite weary of it. It's my lifestyle. Uh, controversy seems to be part of what I have to deal with all of the time. I wasn't attractive about this. Rather, it was out of a concern for my own generation in particular, and with respect to you guys who are not part of my generation, it's not because I don't care about yours either, but we are each responsible for our generation. Furthermore, I am, unlike uh, some of the bishops, should I say, of the emergent movement, such as Brian McLaren here in North America and Steve Chalk in Europe, I am not a baby boomer. I was not born between 1945 and 1965. I am actually what is known, as I'm sure you're all aware of this sort of social analysis, as Generation X. That is, I was born somewhere between 1965 and 1980. As it happens, I was born in 1974. I'm 33 years old. And to be candid, it's my generation right now that is having to deal with and respond to a widespread abandonment of the evangelical faith in the Western world the student and sexual revolution, the drug culture, individualism and privatization of faith championed by the boomer generation. Now, if you're a boomer, I'm not accusing you of anything in particular. I'm simply saying that the boomer generation gave us all of those things. And it's my generation, and now my, I've got three young children, and my children who are having to work through and deal with the consequences of what the boomers have been involved in. So in keeping with the conversational and let's call it playful approach that is supposed to characterize the emergent movement, let me with somewhat tongue-in-cheek, before we uh, move to theology and analysis proper, uh, give you my perspective in a nutshell. It is often falsely assumed that if you're under 40, you will automatically be in sympathy with the main concerns of the largely, and I think ironically, white male middle class Western former evangelical fundamentalist emergent thinkers. Most of whom, it seems, go through Fuller Seminary. And to be candid again, I have grown somewhat weary, and I think I speak for many in my generation, of the whining of certain members of the boomer generation in the contemporary church who seem perpetually obsessed with novelty, who continue to tell my generation that we're on the edge of a great revolution, which once again they've instigated, and that their rehashing of 
things that have been condemned as heresy 600 years ago, combined with endless social commentary, is ushering in a grand new era in this post-Christian, post-Christendom, post-secular, post-foundationalist, post-modern, post-feminist, etc., etc., context. It appears to many of us, and I speak for many as a Gen Xer, that the hippie movement and student revolution of the 60s was not enough for a lot of them, and having failed to transcend that growing up phase, want to light up once more, reviving an abstracted Jesusianity and tour the internet village in the VW camper van of woolly and spaced out theological vagaries. With a heavy, heavy helping of guilt, post-colonial lentil soup and a side order of Karl Marx, as far as I can tell. Now this may sound incredibly cynical and rather strong to you, but it is tongue-in-cheek. There are many Gen Xers with young families in the church today who want to give notice that the hermeneutics of suspicion and deconstruction do not interest us that much, as much as a full-orbed faith for all of life lived out in terms of scripture and expressed in the context of our everyday lives in a culture that is decaying all around us. That is my personal confession of honesty at the beginning of this address is to say that my desire is a resurgent church. The resurgent church that has changed history in the past, not what is sometimes identified today as emergence or the emergent church. Now to begin with, <clears throat> even rightly defining the mood of this group is not easy. Since some people tell us it's a conversation, other people that it's a movement or a group, and still others are now making the claim that it is simply the inevitable shape of the church of the future. As Brian McLaren has written, and I quote, we do not see ourselves as the emerging church, meaning a slice, sector, or division of the church that is roughly analogous to the charismatic church, or the seeker church, instead we see ourselves as the church emerging, meaning a growing edge of the church at large in all its forms, stretching from the margins into new territory beyond modern Western Christianity. Now that's quite a statement. We've moved beyond the ostensibly humble tone to give way to a grandiose vision of reformation of a sort, pointing the way to a new future constructed on what I think is existential doubt, Hegelian uh, praxis, and I'm going to come back to that, and the remains of an ultra-modernity, sometimes called post-modernity. Now, unlike the reformers of the 16th century, the emergent leaders, as far as I can tell, and as far as I can understand from reading them, are not calling for a return to the authority of Scripture and the ecumenical councils of the Church. In fact, most are unwilling to commit to three of five of the basic creeds and councils of the first five centuries of the Church, including Constantinople in 381, Ephesus in 431, and Chalcedon in 451. Why? Well, apparently, 
They exclude too many people like the Apollinarians, Nestorianism, Pelagianism, and Chalcedon too specifically uh, identifies the two natures of Christ. Balances apparently too much on a pinhead for the likes of so many. So we have a either simply an affirmation of the Apostles' Creed or at best a movement towards an affirmation of the Nicene Creed. Not much danger of a trial of worms here, I feel. Christianity is to be remade and rediscovered as a Jesus who can be warmly welcomed by all sinful and rebellious people. Now forgive me if this sounds strong, but I didn't come here to waste an hour. And I've already said to Roy, feel free to completely distance yourself from anything I have to say today. After all, I'm the speaker, this shouldn't reflect negatively on you. At the same time, I want to be as kind and as fair as I possibly can be, speaking as somebody, as I say, who is part of this Generation X. I went through the European public school. I went to and have studied at secular university in the West, as well as seminary. And I've traveled east to west, I've had the privilege of traveling east to west of the globe in the last 12 years. Samir Samanovic from the coordinating group for Emergent Village in the book The Emergent Manifesto has put it this way. We believe, and I quote, there are no shadows in Christ. We want nothing less than to reinterpret the Bible reconstruct the theology and reimagine the church to match the character of God that we as followers of Christ have come to know. Now the Emergent Manifesto is a very useful book and if you haven't read it I encourage you to get it, the Emergent Manifesto of Hope, because unlike some of the early novel type stories of uh, Brian McLaren, this manifesto brings together a collection of essayists representing the Emergent movement and, as the word manifesto might suggest, is a little more concrete in terms of some of its suggestions and laying out some of its agenda. Fuller Seminary professor and emergent guru Barry Taylor has put it equally forcefully, and I quote, Whether Christianity has any future at all as a vibrant expression of faith in the man from Galilee is a matter of debate as far as I am concerned. Perhaps the time calls, times call for something else something other, not merely the repackaging of the old metaphors, but a new incarnation of what it means to follow Jesus. He goes on, religion is always a cultural production and the role of socio-cultural issues cannot be discounted from the ways in which we envision and understand faith. And in this essay, which I found to be filled with contradiction and some startling excursions into biblical exegesis, if you can call it that. He says, the solution is to go with the flow, might seem a trite way of describing theological engagement, but a commitment to fluidity and a willingness to swim in the cultural waters rather than insisting on one's own paddling pool is a necessary perspective. All these thoughts can be summarized as a commitment to weakness rather than strength. Muscular Christianity and robust faith are views that worked well in modernity's concrete world 
but the viability of Christianity is not guaranteed by claims to power and declarations of strength and doctrinal postures. Now, the themes of uh, weakness, uh, powerlessness, learning, fluidity are, of course, very recurring motifs in the emergent literature that desires, it seems, above all, and I think as a reflection of the spirit of the age, a Jesus who is, and I will give you some quotations directly from these works shortly, a Jesus acceptable to the atheist, the Jew, the Muslim, the Hindu alike, in fact, a Jesus who is himself hidden in those traditions. So how do we begin to ask whether the, deconstruction, the deconstructionists themselves need deconstructing? At the outset, let me say this, because I want to be fair. Not everything labeled emergent is alike. Now, I've been doing some, uh, some research with the University of Manchester through Cliff College, and I think Cliff College was the first European seminary to have a master's degree on emergent church. And so many of the professors that I've been interacting with, actually, in fact, the, the main one, uh, was the uh, progenitor and, the, in fact, the organizer of this master's program in the emergent church. And certain things become very clear. Emergent church, for some, signals nothing more than some relevant cultural analysis and some valid criticisms of the church in the West and how we are seeking to do church one of the favorite expressions. So in other words, for some, emergence is asking some important questions about church polity, how we organize church, where church can, and can happen, how we are to go about it, what forms of Christian traditions can we employ to enrich our own experience, depending on which background you're from. I'm from an Anglican background, mixed with a bit of Pentecostalism in England, and then uh, which is an unusual combination, um, and, uh, uh, and various other streams as I've worked cross-denominationally. For some, it is about reimagining and rethinking the context of expressions of worship and witness. They are not seeking the remaking of orthodoxy or Christianity into uh, a new Jesusianity with a customary hostility to Moses and Paul in particular. Others, however, have clearly um, a much more sweeping vision of an emergent manifesto, a vision which has an ever-decreasing interest in clear statements of theology and belief, a de-emphasis on evangelistic mission in the preaching of the cross, the power and working of the Holy Spirit, and cultural transformation in terms of scripture. In fact, for many of you, and you may have tackled some of the emergent literature, it is ironic to find that it is almost imprisoned in an elitist terminology, in a specialized terminology of postmodernity and sometimes literary criticism. It's often quite difficult to people to make their way through the fog of the language. In this wing of the movement, we have everything from postmodern hermeneutics to inclusivism, universalism, Marxism, and even pluralism to antinomianism, 
Socinianism and eco-humanism. And I'll come back to some of those. These are just some of the strains that can be clearly identified in especially the more recent emergent literature. Now, in my opinion, I hope I'm wrong on this. I genuinely hope I am wrong. We are seeing, and many missiologists in Europe uh, agree with this, a, the birth of a new liberalism. Just as we feel like we've warded off and finished with the attack of the old liberalism, which had an old hermeneutic, the, the demythologizers, you remember them? Bishop Spong, who still manages to make his way onto the radio and television from time to time. The demythologizers, the higher critics, take the United Church of Canada as an example. 1925, the Methodists, the Presbyterians come together. Modern uh, criticism, uh, modernity, liberalism take root. And today, except for a few scattered United Churches here and there, the end of the United Church is being predicted within 10 years. It's, it's, it's extinction. And everywhere in the West, liberal churches are closing down hand over fist. That is to be expected. However, with a different hermeneutical tool, we are seeing almost the identical theological concerns arising again except this time with the addition of one that wouldn't have gone down a hundred years ago in most quarters in the West, sexual ethics, we are seeing a new form of liberalism emerging, and that's the reason I'm here, that's why I'm concerned. Because the movement has gone in two directions. One, with some valid and much needed analysis and criticism of the contemporary church situation. The other side of it already moving in, in the direction of a desire to reinvent Christianity altogether from the ground up. It's interesting, I gave myself recently to a study of the downgrade controversy at the end of the 19th century. Some of you may have heard of the British-English Victorian preacher Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, who in the last years of his life became embroiled in the downgrade controversy which was the incursion of liberalism and the higher critical movement into evangelical Baptist circles. And when you look at the doctrinal issues which he was facing and seeking to deal with 125 years ago, they are identical to the doctrinal questions, creation, fall, law, atonement, eternal judgment, authority of scripture, identical to the key questions which are being raised again today. Let me just very quickly, before we move forward, look at some motive and background in one of the main leaders of the movement, and I think generally speaking, Brian McLaren is certainly considered to speak for, as a bishop, for North American emergence, if I, for want of a better term. I realize it's a conversation but it's becoming a more organized conversation all the time. I realize that by definition I am falling into the emergent trap by even delivering this lecture. 
that by offering any sort of critical analysis, I am revealing my own bias and imprisonment, and I can already hear some people here or listening to the tape saying, well, of course, he's an apologist, he's a modernist. He works with Ravi Zacharias, and Brian McLaren doesn't speak highly of Ravi Zacharias in generous orthodoxy. I'm already, then, imprisoned in a previous paradigm by definition of the critique. And that's one of the most difficult things about this conversation, is that by engaging in critical analysis, you already uh, put yourself in a position of being either not understanding it, you just don't get it. I didn't get the sexual revolution either. Uh, you just don't get it, or you don't understand it, or you're just imprisoned in a previous paradigm. Can I say I'm not a modernist? I don't hold modernist presuppositions. I don't hold to a modernist worldview. It's important to notice the background and work of the leading boomer generation, Brian McLaren, the main spokesperson. And I must confess, and I admit it, that I find him, his writing, disappointing and frustrating to read. It's difficult to see how a man as confused as McLaren professes to be can be a help to a biblically illiterate and as far as I can see lost generation. And this is what he says, and I quote, I'm sure I'm wrong about many things, although I'm not sure exactly which things I'm wrong about. I'm even sure I'm wrong about what I think I'm right about in at least some cases. Unravel that epistemological tangle. And a little later, this is from a generous orthodoxy, pages 19 through 20, you are about to begin an absurd and ridiculous book. The book is absurd because it advocates an orthodoxy that next to no one actually holds, at least not so far. End quote. Now, that may be playful or uh, whatever he's trying to be. I just find it profoundly unconvincing. I'm glad my history teacher or my math teacher never began the class with, I'm not exactly sure which things I'm wrong about, and I'm even sure I'm wrong about what I think I'm right about in at least some cases. He admits himself, his strong biases, and his as far as he's concerned, lack of qualification to even write the book. And this is what he says, and I quote, I myself will be considered by many to be com completely unqualified to write such a book of theology, being neither a trained theologian nor even a legitimate pastor if legitimacy is defined by ordination qualifications in a bona fide denomination. Beyond all these warnings, you should know that I am horribly unfair in this book, lacking all scholarly objectivity and even-handedness. And even my own upbringing was way out on the end of one of the most conservative twigs, of one of the most conservative branches, of one of the most conservative limbs of Christianity, and I am far harder on conservative Protestant Christians who share my heritage than on anyone else. I'm sorry. At the risk of being accused, though, of not getting it, I'm not sure I believe he's sorry. And I'll tell you why. He could have edited the book before publication if he was sorry after writing his first draft. I've written three books. They go through two or three drafts. If I really thought that were true about my writing, I'd edit it. I'd revise it. These are games, in my opinion. 
With this confession laid out in black and white, which seems to endear himself to his audience, these Oprah Winfrey honesty moments seem to win people over, and yet the implications when fleshed out are not so encouraging. But instead, he and other boomers like him, I think, are in an extreme pendulum reaction to the failures of their own traditions or negative experiences. He says himself, I've been balanced on a twig of a branch of one very small quarter of probably fundamentalist Christianity in America. And so you find these emergent guys rejoicing in having a beer, having a glass of wine, and watching a movie their parents wouldn't have watched. Friends, big deal, to be honest. We Anglicans drink like fish. It's not a big deal, and this seems to be part of the North American phenomenal aspect of this. I play soccer twice a week, indoor during the winter, outdoor during the summer, followed by barbecue and beer with guys from all over the world who've emigrated to this country. I don't write a book about how incredible it is that I'm interacting with these people and drinking beer. I just do it, and I engage in conversation and share the faith. So this seems to me to be something of a reaction to their particular, and I sympathize, their particular twig which they were perched on and they are like rebellious teenagers in reaction to it. Go, it accounts for the feeling that I have reading some of their work and some of the essayists that I'm reading the work of an outraged teenager. We've all come from a different church tradition. We've all got blindnesses. We've all got biases. That's true. That's fair. But we cannot move to a critique of Christianity on the basis of our own disappointing experiences or misperceptions. Especially when those are being foisted on a younger generation who did not grow up with the background that many of these emergent thinkers had the privilege of growing up with. They've got some foundation to fall back on. Most young people reading this material today do have no foundation to fall back on. They don't have creedal orthodoxy to fall back on. They don't have uh, rich uh, traditions in, in, in scripture, a confessional evangelicalism to fall back on. They are largely biblically illiterate. They don't know how to critique this kind of stuff. They've never even read the Chalcedon Council's material or even the Nicene Creed. They don't know the Ten Commandments. Most groups that I survey of young people, I did one at uh, Minneapolis Uni uh, Minnesota University the other day when I was lecturing to 500 young people, Christians. Three of them knew the Ten Commandments. It's they who are reading this material. And they don't have a foundation to fall back on. That's my concern. The pseudo-intellectual character of the material is readily seen also in some of these simple-minded blanket condemnations of Christianity in other eras, particularly the modern era. This sort of analysis, I think Don Carson has described, is not only, and I quote, historically skewed and ethically ungrateful, but is frequently theologically shallow and intellectually coherent. I agree with that. 
Errors that would not be made by anyone who understood the characters and issues surrounding rationalism in the birth of the modern era, for example, would not say this, and I quote, Confronted with vast amounts of newly gathered scientific data, this leapt out at me, the Church sought to create equally scientific arguments for God. Pascal, Descartes, and other thinkers during this period formulated a series of evidences for the existence of God. Profound half-truth that demonstrates a total ignorance of the period. Pascal was an Augustinian, a mathematician, a philosopher. You may have read his pensée. I've read it several times. He abhorred rationalistic arguments. In fact, he felt that arguments that sought to prove God from works of nature, i.e. scientific arguments, were almost worthless. And he was an active critic of Descartes. He says, I cannot forgive Descartes, for he does completely without God in his system. Now yes, Descartes did try to construct arguments for God's existence, but Pascal definitively did not construct these sorts of arguments, and yet he is named there with Descartes as the key writer of such things. Now, this is just intellectual laziness and poor scholarship. His pensée is a remarkable work of Christian apologetics that explores the human condition, not, rational, not rationalist arguments from clear and distinct ideas. Furthermore, it was the medieval period, the scholastic era, with men like Thomas Aquinas and others, who long predated these moderns, who came up with arguments for God's existence, like Aquinas' five ways, which you may be familiar with. Not only that, Augustine in the fourth century came up with one or two arguments for God's existence that were later developed by Aquinas and some would argue even borrowed by Descartes. So this idea that you can make these huge sweeping generalizations and throw these sorts of names in is unfortunately typical of this material in this literature. And Carson rightly notes it. Further, there is the use of the postmodern critique. Now at one point, McLaren does say, and I quote, the that postmodernity is the last in a long line of absurdities. And yet, he is never clear why he is so attached to it and its absurdities. It's not clear either why, I don't know whether you've had this experience, but as a 33-year-old who has enjoyed worshipping in various church traditions on different sides of the continent, I cannot understand the absolutist tone and absolutist intent in the condemnation of other approaches. And if it's not said directly, there are sideswipes perpetually that leave the reader feeling marginalized, ignorant, out of the conversation, or just downright stupid and outmoded. We don't have time to go into a detailed survey of epistemology, this is one of my favorite areas, but suffice, to say, suffice it to say, it is simply erroneous to see post-modernity as essentially different from modernity in terms of a theory of knowledge. Carson rightly notes again, and I quote, what is striking is the simple fact that both moderns and postmoderns begin with the, begin the epistemological quest, that's the quest for knowledge, with the finite eye. Even though they come up with radically different structures of thought. In fact, 
It is the continuity of the focus on the finite self as the starting place in epistemology that constitutes the chief reason why some thinkers prefer to treat postmodernism as a form of late modernism or even ultra-modernity. Do you hear what he's saying here? If you're not familiar with philosophy, the modernists, if you like, the rationalists, begin with the doubting subject, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. They remove revelation to the periphery. We must build knowledge on the basis of clear and distinct ideas, the finite self. Now, post-modernity or ultra-modernity is simply modernity's first premise pushed to its logical conclusion. If there is only the finite I, the doubting subject, and we can't reach consensus as doubting subjects on what reality is, then it's your view, and your view, and your view. And there are relative views or groups, communities of groups coming together in communities of knowledge, etc. Community, epistemological communities. It leads eventually to solipsism, which simply means the mind alone. It is post-modernity, if it is anything more than a will-o'-the-wisp concept, which many missiologists now refer to it as in Europe, an indefinable will-o'-the-wisp. It is the burning out of modernity in terms of knowledge. It is the final admission that we cannot find certainty and it is fruitless to try. What is called post-modernity then is ultra-modernity in terms of knowledge. It doesn't, why? And this is the final clincher, because it does not return to revelation to ground itself. It doesn't go back to God. The problem for uh, pre-moderns was not God, it was, it was us. The problem for the modern was, the, was not the thinking self, it was God. God was the philosophical problem. The pre-moderns began with revelation. Descartes' chief critique of the ancients was they lacked sufficient certainty. He was a mathematician. They began with God and revelation. Now the postmodern doesn't return to God and revelation to ground knowledge. They remain trapped in the finite self. The finite I. I'll move on from that. The critique of apologetics that is offered by McLaren as a modernist project, even though it is mandated in scripture in 1 Peter 3.15 and has been practiced for 19 centuries. Despite the benefit he claims to have come by through reading people like Schaefer and Ravi Zacharias, whom he says he read as a teenager, now <clears throat> I have difficulties with that. Because Ravi is 61 years old. And he didn't publish a book until his late 30s, early 40s. The first one was a shattered visage. So about 20 years ago. I think Brian McLaren is in his 50s. Doesn't quite add up. Anyway, that's just a passing point. A lack, I think, of careful thought and research has gone into this. Why? Classical apologists themselves, who do go with a Thomistic, Thomas Aquinas' view of apologetics, admit that the most powerful refutations of modernity came from the reform schools of thought, like the apologetics of Cornelius Van Til or Herman Doiverd, who influenced both of whom influenced 
people like Francis Schaeffer, who anticipated postmodernity. And if he'd read Schaeffer carefully, he would have seen this and would have known that many apologists of the Reform School offered the most powerful critiques of the epistemological failure of modernity. Let's move on. As a European, and I hate to call myself that because I'm British, but that's what they call us these days. As a European, and I'm being adopted as a Canadian, right, as we speak, because I can hold both passports, I, I am tempted to yawn these days, I don't know about you, when I even hear the term postmodernity. Partly because books like The Post-Evangelical by Tomlinson came out over ten years ago in Europe, and European secular intellectuals almost never use the term anymore. In fact, even in North America amongst Christians, I find that people are bored when they hear the word. They're bored with the term. <clears throat> Carson actually notes, interestingly, in his book, that eight years ago, in the year 2000, a conference was convened in Sorbonne, and the group of intellectuals tasked with the analysis of the current cultural situation and not a single paper even used the term postmodernity in, in the year 2000. At a school for missiology in Europe where I'm doing some of this research, as I say, postmodernity is referred to as a will-over-wisp concept. Carson rightly points out, and I quote, and I think he's right on this, once again, in a movement that was on the cusp of intellectual endeavour half a century ago and popular in Europe four decades ago and made popular on the university campuses here a quarter of a century ago, is now the darling of popular evangelical writers trying to sound prophetic. And it's unfortunate, and I grew up in the evangelical church, and this is what we do. We catch up 25 years too late, trying to sound as though we're prophetic, and actually, the real prophetic writings happened 30 or 40 years ago from Christians who anticipated what was coming. The elitism that suggests the postmodern has captured all that was good in the centuries before, and I have to say that the ransacking of church history in a generous orthodoxy and these traditions, and that's what it is, it's a ransacking pick and mix of church history, that at least implies that this postmodern mood has captured all the best of the various traditions and eliminated all the nasty absolutists who like propositional truth, have brought us to the cusp of a new and great era. And frankly, I think it's hollow nonsense. Let me be candid. Michael Horton has written, and I quote, the cheerleading for the idea that we have entered a radically new era, a utopia of unprecedented opportunity, fails to move me because I just don't believe this hype. I think that every period has its pluses and minuses, and that typecasting periods leads to demonizing or equally impulsive lionizing. Who named the Dark Ages the Dark Ages? European intellectuals from the Enlightenment. Who considered the Enlightenment the Enlightenment? anti-Christian humanists who labelled the Enlightenment the Enlightenment. As soon as we start thinking we can tag and bag history into these nice little carefully constructed boxes, we're on the cusp, I think, of intellectual suicide. And so it's no surprise to me then 
that emergent thinkers being, I think, vastly outgunned on issues like epistemology, we find McLaren shifting his ground in the emergent manifesto essay, Church Emerging, to the subject of colonialism and post-colonialism. Now try not to follow that up with a blank stare. But this is related to post-modernity for the following reason, and I quote, I see the postmodern conversation as a profoundly moral project, in intention at least, a kind of corporate repentance among European intellectuals in the decades after the Holocaust. What were they repenting about? I quote, as I see it, this is McLaren speaking, as I see it, these European intellectuals diagnosed intuitively the disease that caused the range of related symptoms, including the Holocaust and colonialism, as an excessive confidence among Western Christians and the civilization they created. So, in McLaren's opinion, the Holocaust is the result of Western Christianity and civilization, not a cocktail of Darwinism, Nietzschean nihilism, and the overman who killed God and has gone beyond good and evil. Adolf Hitler in Mein Kampf, his book My Struggle, said that Christianity, and I quote, was the most fatal and seductive lie that ever existed. And yet here in this revisionist history, the Hitler who rejected Christianity is absolved and the faith of Bonhoeffer blamed. You think about that for a moment. Now this is a trend in historical revisionism right now. It, just as Augustine in his City of God, another great sinner apparently according to the emergent movement, Augustine that throws stones at him all day. In his book The City of God, who dealt with the fact that the leading intellectuals of the time were blaming Christians for the fall of Rome. And it's a trend today among intellectuals to blame Christianity and all things associated with it for the world's problems and the world's ills. And we've got these emergent commentators joining this bandwagon saying that actually it's Christians and Christian civilization are responsible for the Holocaust. Why? Well, he wants to show that Christians' confidence in truth gave them the attitude of superiority that led to colonialism and the Holocaust, and by extension, such confidence in truth today is inherently dangerous. This could be Bishop Spong speaking. Western intellectuals, he says, therefore treated the cancer of this excessive Christian confidence with what he calls the chemotherapy of pluralism. Now, the fact that missionaries, British missionaries, were banned from going to India during the colonial time until the intervention of the Clapham sect, why? Because the British Empire feared that the spread of Christianity would affect prophets. The fact that it was evangelicals in North America and in Europe, in Britain, like William Wilberforce, who worked for tirelessly until their death, the abolition of slavery in the British Empire and throughout the free world is glossed over, it doesn't get a mention. The fact that prison reform, social reform, ending of child labor, etc, 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 was all the work of evangelicals doesn't get touched on. 
You see, the oppression of the colonial period with its great sins, and there were many, was not Christianity. It was enlightenment, rationalism, and the racism produced by Darwinism that gave us the imperialistic pretensions of many of the European powers. We are now to reflect this by recognizing, however, that even the Church's creedal formulations from the 5th century, according to McLaren's essay, must be reopened to make room for African categories to avoid colonial Christianity and superiority. See, that's the problem with Chalcedon. Even though it was a North African bishop called Augustine and other great North Africans like Tertullian, who even came up with the concept of the Trinity, We've now got to revise the 5th century creeds according to these gentlemen so that we make room for other ideas coming out of contemporary African sources hailing liberals like Desmond Tutu and eco-feminists like Mary Gray as true models of mission for unmasking Western males approach to knowledge who only want to seize power over others. And of course by definition that's all I'm doing today. I'm giving you this uh, forthright and somewhat passionate lecture because I'm a white, male, western, middle-class man who wants to dominate you and change your mind about everything. Can I ask what is McLaren's goal? In a typical abstraction which I'm very familiar with as a missiologist called the Missio Dei, what he wants, it seems, is a great humanitarian order in which white domination and distributive injustices are put right and an equalitarian kingdom that sounds very much like universal socialism to me for all where liberals and conservatives join hands and sing kumbaya seems to be what is the desired outcome. Now this is a utopian dream world frankly of nonsense and if you go and spend any time in the Muslim world my parents have lived and worked among Muslims in Pakistan they're still there for 13 years this stuff is hollow and that's why you don't see masses of Africans and Southeast Asians and South Americans joining the emergent conversation. You go to a Korean Pentecostal church with this. A context that sees Gandhi is embodying Christ's message and where we all repent for our respective histories. Centuries before I was born appears to be the agenda. And I quote from McLaren. What are we in the so-called emergent churches seeking to emerge from, I asked myself. We are seeking to emerge from modern Western Christianity, from colonial Christianity, from Christianity as a white man's religion. That's going to be difficult because he's white. And he's North American. And that's the sovereignty of God, which is the favorite whipping boy of emergent thinkers predestination and sovereignty of God in history. I didn't choose my parents, nor did you. You didn't choose when you were born, the time you would be born. To repent of sins real or imagined of our forebears who are the perpetrators of the Holocaust. And yet Christianity today is far larger in the Far East, China, Southeast Asia, South America than in the West and these people are pouring into Canada mercifully evangelizing us. 
The colonial children have come home to sort out their fathers and thank God for it. Because if it wasn't for the black African church, the Anglican church today in Britain would be finished. The early creeds were shaped by these great African leaders and millions of black, Asian and South American Christians worship in churches all over the Western nations. I grew up in the Pentecostal church. You know the makeup of the Pentecostal church. I've emerged out of this since I was eight years old. Now maybe somebody living in the 519 hasn't as emerged out of it as much, or living in Stouffville, my town, just north of Toronto. Okay, granted. We've all got to deal with our own issues, our own prejudices, our own cultural biases. Or is this all just my expression of my colonial forebears? You have to make that determination. Because McLaren now sees that he was wasting his time and ours on Western males' debates about epistemology, this is in his latest essay, he doesn't want to be stuck with those inconvenient arguments because he says they pre prevent us from emerging. So he's given an announcement I'm no longer interested in talking about post-modernity. By talking about post-colonialism, he says, we are forced to face the issues of violence, domination, power and justice, which was the preserve of the Christian nations. And these are not defined biblically, of course. Getting a definition of justice out of these guys is impossible. Because it's the social justice of Marcusean Karl Marx, not the justice of scripture that is being referred to. Let me move on very quickly, we've only got a few minutes left. Certain key questions always define the critical issues, of course, and what criterion is it upon which the emergent church leaders build their views of inclusivism, universalism, the atonement, the Bible, sexual ethics, post-modernity, etc. Let me give you this word, it's praxis. Praxis, a very important word. I, and I quote from, uh, who am I quoting from? McLaren. I have become convinced that a generous orthodoxy, listen carefully, a generous orthodoxy appropriate to our postmodern world will have to grow out of the experience of the post-Christian, post-secular people of the cities of the 21st century. Did you hear that? A generous orthodoxy appropriate for our postmodern world will have to grow out the experience of the post-Christian, post-secular people of the cities of the 21st century. We are told clearly here that orthodoxy itself that is appropriate for our world, a faith adapted for our world, must be one that is essentially shaped by the ideas and practices of the post-people of today's urban centers. This is a critical statement. Critical statement. For all the protestations that faith and practice are going to mutually inform each other, what in fact emergent thinkers give us is a broad praxeology and not scripture. I search in vain for scriptural warrant for the conclusions of this book. Scripture is not the norming norm. Indeed, with the talk about living the faith informed by scripture, it is scripture that's almost entirely absent. What is praxis? Praxis simply means action based upon reflection or the actualization of a theory. Now that is not a Christian concept. It's a Hegelian concept. It's a dialectical concept. 
the world separated into matter and ideas. It's its origin. Not defined by Christ and his inscripturated word as a final authority for faith and practice, but the urban centers of the 21st century. Emergent uh, thinker Doug Padgett writes, in this world, listen carefully, we need multiple intelligences and multiple practices combined in new ways for new opportunities that will result in new outcomes. What does that mean? We bring together multiple intelligences, multiple practices, combined in new ways for new opportunities that will result in new outcomes. That's praxeology. Is action based upon reflection that has arisen not from faithfulness to God's word, and I quote, gone are the days of believing that only after we have made cognitive assent to theological concepts can we turn to right living. Those days are gone, he says. But abstract speculations, and I quote, what would Christian faith look like if all the intelligences we experience intersected with all the practices? I'll tell you what would happen. Chaos. Confusion. Despair is what happens. Sounds like gibberish, to be honest with you, and frankly it is intellectually incoherent. The point is that this postmodern hermeneutic of openness to the other is a mishmash of multiple intelligences and interrelationships, is a dialectic of Karl Marx and Hegel, not scripture. In a world in which God is not totally sovereign, and as I said, no doctrine comes in for more sideswipes and mocking than the doctrine of God's sovereignty in this book. In a world in which God is not sovereign, man, not God, must predestine the world and make it conform to his idea. That's what Marxism is. That's what Hegelian thought is. If God does not create, govern, and sustain all things, and work all things in terms of his all things in terms of his purposes, if he is not before all time, the Alpha and the Omega, if known unto the Lord are all his works from the beginning of the world, if that's not true, if God can't speak a predictive word into history, then it is men and women who must speak the word of predestination and conform matter, this world, to the idea. That's praxis. That idea is an abstraction. We frame the idea, we incarnate it, and we actualize it. So despite all this talk of incarnational theology and incarnation, it's not the incarnation of Christ and Scripture that we're talking about. It's the incarnation of an abstraction. An abstract idea. There is much talk about incarnation amongst these thinkers. God in Christ regenerates, transforms, and conforms to the image of his Son, so that we are those whom he has called, and justified, and glorified. For he is the author and perfecter of our faith. But the God that I read about in this literature, he's a God who's wrestling with time and matter, 
his face contorted in agony, struggling to make some head nor tail out of the violence and domination, etc., that's in the world. Endlessly trying to react to new creative ways to try and bring this rebellious creature under control. An evolving God. They speak endlessly about the dream of God. What is the dream of God? The dream of God. In this evolving God, through his dreams and his pains, he struggles. Paget writes, and I quote, it is not a misplaced assumption. I beg your pardon, let me go back. They claim to be concrete but they are actually embarrassed by the concreteness of God's word. The concrete commands of God, the concrete activity of God in history is an embarrassment to most of these people, I'm afraid, I'm sad to say. They are the abstractionists who seek to concretize, concretize their idea. Consider this, and I quote, Christianity cannot regain credibility or, re or recaptivate human, human imagination until it learns to exist for the sake of something greater than itself. People are rightly afraid of any religion that will not accept its place at the feet of holy mystery. There's the abstraction. The feet of holy mystery. This syncretistic abstraction about the idea has to captivate the imagination, this holy mystery. And what happens to the concreteness of Christian revelation once we fall at the feet of this abstraction? I'll tell you, and I quote from uh, Salmanovic in the Emergent Manifesto, God's table is welcoming to all who seek if any is welcoming to all who seek. And if any religion is to win, may it be the one that produces people who are the most loving, the most humble, the most Christ-like. Whatever the meaning of salvation and judgment, we Christians are going to be saved by grace like everyone else and judged by our works like everyone else. Doesn't matter which faith religious perspective wins out as long as it's embodying this ethic. The revelation is lost for having abstracted the faith and actualizing the idea. As a consequence, the writers don't know what judgment and salvation mean. That's their own words. Paget writes, when you consider what this dream of God may be, and I quote, it is not a misplaced assumption that a manifesto would be the start of something, that there is a plan for the future being communicated in such a bold endeavor. I mean, who goes on a journey without a destination? Who articulates a preferable future without a picture of a reality? There's the idea. And it turns out the dream is very similar to the socialist order of ancient humanism. And I quote from Paget, the global dreams of our day World peace and justice, medications for all people who need them, turning lands and water that are currently not part of the food system into forms of nutrition, having a voluntary distribution of power from the strong to the care for the weak, creating hopeful global and outer space life. These wondrous times are just the beginning. The version of the gospel that is told here does not resemble anything that I can see as the Christian faith of the Orthodox Church which is why McLaren calls it an orthodoxy that not many people yet believe. What's the commission? What's the commission Padgett gives us at the end of the Emergent Manifesto? And I quote, if we forget the poor and do not work toward freeing people from the oppression of others and from systems of abuse, we fail to claim the mandate of Isaiah and Jesus for our day and we will not be seen to be helpful in the future. 
For our grandchildren may have to deal with a kind of economic and global imbalance beyond our imagination. So the mandate of Jesus and Isaiah is correcting a global imbalance in wealth. Now that's liberation theology. Which again is Karl Marx. Of course God is concerned about the widow and the orphan. Evangelicals and the history of the evangelical church have always been concerned about the widow and the orphan. They may have put forward the concrete actions to deal with it. What tends to happen in my experience in missiological circles with these people is that the state is used to bring about these ends. Not the church. The mandate of Jesus and Isaiah is now the liberation of the poor from oppressive systems of abuse. Praxeology. Where's the doctrine of purchase here? Where's the doctrine of redemption? Freedom from the power of sin and death and guilt and the grave and power to live in conformity with the law of God by the work of his spirit. Because the scripture says the government will be on his shoulders, not ours. Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. What we have here, my friends, I believe, is a sociological cult that is an existentialist concept. The goals of the manifesto are existentially derived by one's own feelings and the needs of the real or imagined of the urban centers. Without the control of scripture and the norming of the Christian past, it is man-centered and not God-centered. And the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob gives way to the sacred ground of culture so that the gospel is conformed to rather than challenging, transforming, and commanding culture. But friends, I don't see Jesus in the New Testament as one who merges, but one who regenerates and transforms. Humanistic social planning is not the whole counsel of God. The scripture says, if the Son make you free, you shall be free indeed. Let me finish with this, and I know time is up. I hope you're okay for time. Let me finish with this point about scripture. McLaren writes, I try to explain that the problem isn't the Bible, but our modern assumptions about the Bible and our interpretative approaches to it. To try and explain that there is a better way to understand and apply the Bible, a largely new and unexplored way that can be summarized like this, we need to reclaim the Bible as narrative. And this idea, very quickly, is this trajectory that the Bible is telling a big story. Of course, the Bible does communicate a story of history. And that story has a trajectory. That is, it moves in terms of a progression. Now, we, of course, would accept that Scripture moves in terms of the progression of his covenant, his great, the great uh, power and finality and glory of his covenant. But for most Christians, his standards of righteousness and holiness and justice do not change in the course of that story. For McLaren, however, since God is a chauvinist and ethnic cleanser in the Old Testament, Moral standards, commands, and ethics cannot be timeless truths. That's, they're not transcultural, but they're relative to time and history. Since God, wrestling with this violent, rebellious world of time, must change his moral patterns to fit the context of a world he cannot control. Now, that's my conclusion from what he says about Scripture. 
So this God is an evolving God, a changing God. Thus, those who hold on to Moses, according to McLaren, are violating the flow of the narrative. Because Jesus is after Moses. And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul comes in for more stick than anyone, and on the trajectory of the narrative, Paul comes after Jesus. Such people, he says, and I quote, have become perpetrators and victims of tragically bad literacy, confusing the genre of ancient biblical narrative with the modern genres of political constitution, moral dictionary, or religious blueprint. What's happening here? Large swathes of scripture essentially are becoming myth or reduced to irrelevance in terms of, here's another word, dynamic equivalence. You know those translations of the Bible which are not looking to translate the words in, in terms of what they originally meant, but rather trying to find an equivalent in terms of contemporary culture. Dynamic equivalence. So rather than saying, what does God say about homosexuality? What does God say in his law about fornication? What does God say in his law about this or that matter? The question becomes, critically, in our cultural context, what kind of things would come in for the same sort of condemnation in our context? In other words, you can pretty much do with this narrative trajectory whatever you will. Ethics are culturally conditioned as God, as is God, and so McLaren even has difficulties with God being revealed in the masculine as father because it reinforces chauvinism and patriarchalism. So God's now not allowed to use his own pronouns or masculine or feminine forms in his word. Because the modern reader might misperceive what God is saying. The problems are not now language in the Bible. The problems, rather, are now language in the Bible, not human ignorance, arrogance, pride, and sin. Since we continue the narrative, where might it go from here is anybody's guess. Since we now interpret scripture in light of this dynamic equivalence in our time, what is true about creation, marriage, sexuality, the atonement, the incarnation, etc., etc., is open to change. That's why orthodoxy is a fluid concept here. It's not something you go back to, to actually have some parameters of orthodox truth. It is something that's emerging, and we simply don't know what it will look like. I'm concerned about the language that's even used about Christ in some of the literature in terms of the traditional Christological categories. For example, this is what McLaren writes about Jesus. I am a Christian because I have a confidence in Jesus, in all his dimensions, those I know and those I don't. I think Jesus is right because I believe God was in Jesus in an unprecedented way. What exactly does that mean? You see, I can affirm the divinity of Christ, so can a Hindu. But a Hindu can't affirm the deity of Christ. You've got the divine spark. You're divine, according to some religious perspectives. Now, I'm not saying to you that McLaren has denied Trinitarian theism. I'm saying that what I read in this literature makes me and forces me to ask serious questions about where the Christology is going. McLaren favor favorably quotes Kenzo and sees even in the Christological categories of Chalcedon as having, and I quote, colonial dis uh, 
discontent thrown in. What is desired by McLaren is a project which, and I quote, classical Christological categories inherited from Chalcedon are reopened to make room for African ones. The result is hybridized Christology where Christ is worshipped as chief, ancestor, master of initiation, healer, or elder brother. Now, as soon as you start playing fast and loose with the early creeds of the church, read danger. If anything reads danger, it's that. I would not be in the least bit surprised, and again, I hope I'm wrong. I'm on this cassette, if it's being taped, I hope I'm wrong. But I would not be surprised if we see soon Unitarian and adoptionist assumptions about Christ coming out very soon. The atonement, I'm going to finish with a quote here. The atonement, of course, has been in many respects jettisoned. Socinus, the uh, heretic around the time of the Reformation, the Socinians, basically denied the justice of God was manifest in the atonement. And denied the presence of any notion of justice in God that required absolutely that sin should be punished, so he found it inconsistent to combine the grace of God and the merits of Christ as a ground for forgiveness. He also felt that since guilt is personal, you can't have penal substitution as possible. Now, in, in the UK, there's a man named Steve Chalk. Who's heard of Steve Chalk? Some of you may have heard about his book, The Lost Message of Jesus. He's seen as very much an emergent uh, guru in the UK. And not only does he jettison the doctrine of the fall in invoking a original goodness, in contradiction to Jesus' statement, you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Chalk goes on to mock the temple of God. I want, to, I want you to hear this before we close. Chalk goes on to describe the role of the temple. And uh, Carson is now quoting, At the center of this sin-busting, forgiveness-bestowing machine was what was known as the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was believed to be enshrined. Wait a minute, says Carson. The design itself was God's, and it was meant to teach us some critically important things about his holiness and what is required to enter into his presence, a mediator and a sacrifice. Chalk's statement, I... Uh, chalk statement believed to be enshrined in this context is irredeemably cynical. This is where the glory of God actually manifested itself both in the tabernacle and in the temple. Moreover, in the New Testament, Jesus is not presented as overthrowing the law but fulfilling it. And in the most, perhaps the most famous quote from Steve Chalk, Chalk's understanding of the truth of God's love goes something like this. The fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside of the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind but born by his son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and refuse to pay evil with evil. Now this is theological absurdity and biblical illiteracy all rolled into one. We haven't got time to deal with it. But the point is this is Socinianism. This is a 600-year-old heresy. 
No wonder Carson writes, McLaren has endorsed Chalk's book. The judgment, the wrath of God spoken of repeatedly in scripture now becomes a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind. It can scarcely be anything else once you disbelieve what the Bible says about the odium of human guilt and shame, the offensiveness of idolatry to God and the certainty of righteous judgment. And if you're in any doubt about the rank pluralism that is now found among the emergent thinkers, listen to this. One does not need to believe in God before living in God's presence. God is present whether we believe in him or not and people do respond to him. Mark, a non-Christian friend of mine from New York, says that for him to become a part of Christianity would be a moral step backwards. Yet he would say things like this to me, to live is to be given a gift. I believe that there is a transcendent sweep over our existence and it seems to me that humanity has been squandering this gift. One just needs to look at what we are doing to each other, but in the midst of the mess I see a grace of new beginnings all around me and within me and I often fail to respond to it. I participate in the madness instead. Whenever in my inner life I do turn to this grace to look for a second chance, I'm always granted one. I think I want to spend the rest of my life being a channel of this goodness to others. This view embodies the doctrine of creation, sin, salvation, and new life. That's Christ embedded in the life of Mark, present in substance rather than in name. So a man who rejects Christ, who rejects the faith, but turns within himself to find new hope, is said to be, and held to be, somebody who is in as, as much in touch with Christ as any Christian. When I was, nevertheless, I was looking for ways to encounter God, this is another essay, to feel that luminous presence in my life. It's interesting that I can say I am a Christian today because of a Hindu meditation master. She taught me some things that Christians had not. She taught me to meditate, to sit in silence and openness in the presence of God. She taught me to love God, which allowed me to experience God's love for me. She also taught me to honor Jesus and suggested Jesus could teach me. She provided the divine touch through a human hand and showed me how to be an active participant in my own spiritual life. Sitting in meditation in a technique similar to what Christians call centering prayer, I encountered the love that is unconditional, yet it called to me... It called me to responsible action. I continue to seek and practice opening my awareness to the presence of the holy in the world in day-to-day -day life. She goes on to say how she then went to a church. The minister there invited me into the community by serving me communion without asking if I was a Christian. He embodied the radical welcome of Jesus at the supper table, introducing me to Jesus in a way that no one else had. So whereas Paul says, if you eat and drink the blood of Christ at communion, you unworthily, without faith, you drink judgment on yourself and on the entire body, here we have somebody who has essentially ostensibly come to know God through Hindu meditation, through yoga, paganism and the emptying of the mind, who turns within themselves to find this love, turn up at church, are given communion, without even asking whether they have a confession of faith in Christ. Friends, this is not Christianity. Now, I could read you more. Atheists, anti-Christians in here, we are being told they are more Christian than those who confess the faith. I challenge you to read that book, An Emergent Manifesto of Hope. If the Bible means anything, friends, we have to be on our guard.
Nothing I have said today is meant to be a blanket condemnation of anybody who has found value in some of the social commentary, criticisms of the Western Church, analysis of the North American situation within Christianity, or even some finding of benefit in some of what some of these emerging writers may have said. But what I am doing is I want to issue, and I am issuing, a caution and a warning. As a generation exit, as a 33-year-old who cares about my generation of Christians, who cares about the church of today and tomorrow is going, there is danger here. And we need to be careful in our scholarship, careful in our reading, responsible in what we teach, and careful about what and whom we allow into the pulpit to teach the people. Because we are in a biblically illiterate generation, and when these are the popular books that are floating around, it's been amazing to me over the past four years how many times at universities I've been asked by Christians specifically about Brian McLaren, for example, and the emergent church. It's often the first question on their lips. Young people want to know, they're confused, they don't understand. Some of them are buying it hook, line and sinker, others are raising significant questions. You and I, as pastors and teachers and leaders, need to be responsible to understand the times. That's what the scripture tells us. And a cursory reading of some of these materials, I've just had an hour. I could have spent a day seminar or more on this, unpacking these different subjects. So I want to urge you, I want to encourage you to be wise, to be cautious, not to blanketly condemn, that's not been my intention today. Sure, I'm exercised about this issue. I'm passionate about this issue because I believe that we are on the brink, if this is not checked, of the birth of a new liberalism. And we saw what old liberalism did to the church. And we have to be light in the darkness. We have a responsibility as teachers. Not many of you should presume to be teachers. I tell you this, I am terrified when I read some of that material on the basis of what Paul the Apostle says about the burden and the responsibility and the judgment that we come into if we stand in a pulpit to speak. That if the glory of Christ and the truth of Scripture is not first and foremost in our minds and our lives and in our teaching, we are subject to a stricter judgment. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.